Thanks for listening. This is Angela and David. The following episode was recorded in the winter of 2019. Stay safe. Rise up. Be mighty. With us today is Jody Rothfield. And welcome to Into the Trenches. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank, thank you for joining you. us. It's pleasure. Super awesome to have you here. Jody and I, oh my gosh, I can't remember when we met. I, I started this acting thing in like 20 years ago, and I feel like, I don't know, shortly after college, d- didn't you somehow... You know had a class. Oh, well, I knew your parents because of Seattle U, and my husband got his master's and undergrad from Seattle U. So I sat next to them at a table right. for the then mayor, who I loved. I can't remember his name. and um, But I met you in a class, and you were not available. You were working for some company. So I said, oh, my God, you're amazing. Can Are you available to come in? No, I have a full-time job. Oh, no, the day job. Oh. Another one bites the dust. There's that thing, there's that thing about actors where... If, you know, we, we need to have a job to pay our rent and our mortgage and our bills, but then there's just an audition. You have an audition, and it's like during the day. So that's that constant, like, how do I find my survival job that gives me enough flexibility to come in to audition for these amazing opportunities and meet Jody? And it's one of those things where opportunity knocks, and we can't always answer the door. We have to pay our bills. But it was interesting that you took the class because obviously it was something you wanted to do yeah. and pursue, but you weren't actually logistically ready to do it. Totally. Well, Jody has those classes where everybody in the world just knows you have to take Jody's auditioning class. It's Truth. like one of those things you have to do as an actor here in Seattle. And so, of course, that's why I took it. It was out many of college. years ago, David. It was. And it's, but that's true. It was in the Dexter still... Avenue location. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's take it way back then. Let's mm-hmm. take it way back. You were a child. You were a mere child. I was a mere child. You took a class. I did take a class. My mom was a single mom at the time, and she always supported my love of the arts. So I remember she must have done her research and... She met you ahead of time, Jody, and I know she loved you. And then we found out my agent at the time, DNR Enterprises, also recommended you. So my mom said, honey, you're going to take this class, and I think you're going to love it. She's she's really cool. It's going to be just like being with me, your mom. <laughs> I was maybe 10 years old at the time, and I just remember thinking, oh, am I taking an acting class with my mom? Uh, I'd already booked some feature films and commercials, So I remember you allowed me to take the class with the older actors, and you challenged me just as much as you challenged them. And I remember immediately using the tools you gave me in that class the following week for a commercial audition with a different casting director, and I booked it. Good. So I told my mom, I think Jody is a good one, and the rest is her story. (laughs) So we have a series of questions for you. Okay, shoot. And I want to ask, right out the gate, why become a casting director? But my my journey to becoming a casting director is definitely not like other people. I was a music producer in New York during the MTV years. My best friend was a pretty well-known casting director, Ronnie Eskel, for um, theater. Uh, that wasn't my orientation. Film was my orientation. I was in the studios at night recording music so I'm not I wasn't the musician I was the producer manager and so I was available in the day so she would send me to matinees and to film to find to scout so it was just a thing I did for fun and then we both got tired I got tired of living in New York City and so did she she wanted to go to LA to pursue casting for film and I wanted to go to LA to leave New York (laughs) and thought I'll 
get a music job. I was already at my top of my game then, so as a music manager, producer. I went to L.A. and nothing. I literally, nothing. People would spin your, you know, L.A. is a big spin-your-wheel place. Mm -hmm. But people would embrace me and take me to lunch at these famous places. And I thought, oh, for sure I'm going to find something. And nothing ever happened. So she said, why don't you come and help me just for fun? And I was young and single. And this is the funny story. I thought, I'm young and single. I'll, I'll look at the actors. I'll meet the actors. And I did. And it was a lot of fun. Never thinking this would ever become my profession. That would, you know, I was a music, music was my world. And I really liked it, but I still didn't think it was going to happen. And then a friend of hers, Gary Zuckerbrod, who has been the, the head of casting for CBS over the years, he was a freelancer at the time. We were socially friends. He needed an assistant, was up, you know, up against the wall. And, and Ronnie said, use Jody. She knows, she knows the ropes now. Mm-hmm. And I started with him and he was a freelancer. So we went from job to job to job, mostly movies of the week. Some movies, but those in the this was late eighties. Um, movies of the week were very popular then. The networks had a movie a week, yeah. and so he mostly did that. And I don't know. I liked it. It was very social. That's all I could think about. Is it was social? Yeah. I had fun, and I learned. You know, I, I would stay. I, my job was to stay after the session to have the production people put the people that Gary liked on tape to send to New York, because that's where they were shooting. So I would be done with my job and then I'd sit with the production people and watch what Gary did with different actors in the room and see the different what different actors did and it was really a learning thing for me and then I reconnected with with who, the man who became my husband who I came up here to be with I never let him forget it and so I didn't know there was casting here but when I was looking for work I saw that there was casting and then I found out that it was a really large talent pool because of theater mm-hmm. so I thought ah I'll try and that's how it started that's great. And the first two weeks that I opened up my company, I was given Sleepless in Seattle. No one knew what it was at the time, but mm-hmm. it, was, it was going to be a Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan movie. And we did all the supporting cast. And that was an interesting story because, let me know if I'm going off into the, no, no, the horizon true. here, yeah. because we cast all the, all the speaking roles. But um, Nora Ephron, who was the writer and director, she ultimately had her friends who wanted to just do cameos take over those roles. Like Tom Hanks' wife played a major role. Um, Rob Reiner played a major role. Those were all cast here. Mm. And so we had to uncast people, basically. Yeah, wow. we, they got the job and then were told no. Again, they didn't know at that time that it was anything going to be sure. exciting, but except that it was Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. But it was, that was my first feature here. There were like six features every year. I remember that. Yeah, there was uh, Harry and the Hendersons. Which was Patty. Yeah. And um, there were lots of things. Yeah. I did The Ring. I mean, yeah. you know what Seattle was famous for then, which unfortunately no longer. If you were to look at my search resume as opposed to my casting resume, the searchers are when they know that there's a casting pool here, that there's a talent pool here, excuse me. And so something that's not filming here, they'll hire a local casting director for regular for series regulars or for the star, you know, stars of a movie. Several of them got flown down, people that were auditioned here. That was exciting. So my my searches resume was far superior to my ca- regular casting mm. resume because I wasn't at the mercy of people filming here. Mm. So I had so much fun with scripts that, you know, of course, became very famous. And people here in Seattle got to be flown down to L.A. for screen tests. Those days are over because the money isn't there. So I'd get calls from casting director, whoever the casting director, the major casting director was, the one that was actually assigned to the project. They would call and say, look, we're looking for this. So if you have anybody you think would be interesting, 
put them on tape, and it was thrilling for the actors, even just to get to be seen for something that was major, and then to be the ones that were flown down. Well, it's like I said, in this industry, opportunity knocked, and you decided, okay, I'm going to assist my friend, which then led to the opportunity of working with Gary, which led you moving to Seattle. You know, and back in the 80s, the market was on fire. We just had so much more money here for the industry. And what I love is that you have become this force for casting in Seattle and that you are really trying to set the actor up to succeed. Whether they know it or not, you want them to be the one. Well, I think what actors don't realize, and this is an important thing to know, because you're very fragile, you're artists, you know, and auditioning is the most unnatural thing you do as an actor. I'm, I'm sure of it, and I'm the queen of it. That's what I, where I see actors. I see amazing actors. I go to lots of theater who I can't wait to get in the room, and then when they come in the room to audition, they step on their own feet, and it's not because they're not talented. They're just not skilled at the auditioning process, right? But my feeling is that I'm hired for my knowledge of the talent pool, my taste, and then I'm a casting director. I'm not an agent. People often get that confused. I don't represent anyone. So I am there to get the best possible audition from the actor. And plus, it all is about me, which is a good thing. In other words, if I have a good session where my client walks away and says, wow, I had lots of choices. So cool. You know what you're doing. You know who's there. People I didn't hear about before. You're bringing new people, whatever. Um, They're going to come back to me. So I if you look good, I look good, and if it's all about me, that's good for you. Mm-hmm. And if you truly stink up the room, you just won't end up on tape, and you won't know. You know that's good to know. So you won't ever have to be have been seen in such a bad light because everybody has a crappy day and everybody has a crappy auditioner. The point is to try to become a consistent auditioner where you're always coming to the table with something, and that's what we look for. And again, you reflect my taste, so I'll do everything possible in my power to make you look good because then I shine. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, with this idea that you go to a show, you go see some theater, and you're like, man, that person's a really good actor. Then you bring them in for the audition, and things are just not the same. Not is there is there an adjustment that an actor needs to make, and what do they need? What should they do? I don't know why the idea of the camera makes a lot of theater actors crazy. They think that you have to do something different, and you do. There are certain buttons you have to push that work for the medium of broad, broadcast as anything for the camera, and I get that. But I think that whole... You know, when you're comfortable in a certain situation and you're both theater actors and camera actors, broadcast actors, but when you when you have a certain milieu that is your milieu and it's what you know and you know it inside and out and you have your confidence level, you know what's expected, then to be put into a different thing where perhaps you really just need to do the same thing. But, I, for instance, theater actors are always told when they come in for a camera audition, you're too big, you're too big. But so what they do to compensate for that is they do nothing. Mm-hmm. And what it means is just your delivery is too big, that you, you need to talk and that you don't have to play to the 38th row. But your choices still need to be intact for the character, for the relationship. All the same things that are acting. Good acting is good acting and bad acting is bad acting. Mm-hmm. The camera, the difference is you just make a few tweaks. It's just tweaking. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know that and you have some information in your head or something that you kind of hold on to, that may totally wreck it for you to have a broadcast audition. Even physicality, I find, with theater actors, they, they're used to a certain kind of, I don't know what you call it, but spatial thing. And then all of a sudden, mm. they're told to stand on a mark, and they don't know if they're allowed to move, and they don't know to ask. These are all things you can ask when you come in. We don't want you to come in and ask 20 questions, because that's just high maintenance. You know, people go, what do you want? And I always say, well, what do you got? 
Yep. Some of the old school actors that we love and we see all the time will come in, like when they come in for a film audition, but it's only a one-liner or under five or whatever. I mean, they're who they are, yeah. and so they're they're auditioning for a director who they don't know, but somebody who's working in film. And to cover themselves, they say, well, what would you like? That's never something you want to ask. You, We want to see what you bring to the table, and then if we need something different, you're an actor who makes choices, we'll tweak it, if you're lucky, because that's the other side of that is. And this I always tell my students is, most directors are an actress directors. They know the concept of the piece. They have the bigger idea of it. But they don't know how to necessarily communicate with the talent what they want. And some do, and that's wonderful. Some think they do, and that's not so wonderful. But sometimes they're just waiting for you to walk in with it. And if you don't, they don't know how to play with you. When you're a casting director, most of us anyway, well, first of all, we have some skin in the game. We want you to do well. But also, it's like we're used to talking to you. I mean, most of the time, I have something to help. But even I find myself saying, this is a horrible direction. I'll say something like, let's see something different. How many times have you heard that? Yeah. And that isn't really direction. Right. But if you're an actor who makes choices, which is your job as an actor, you will know what something different would be. But it would be nice if they would just tell you what they want. The thing is, they don't really necessarily know what they want. And they're waiting for you to come in and do it. And then they go, that's what I want. I love that. And I hope my film actors that are listening and my theater actors, too. I hate that we have to differentiate acting is acting. But... Be ready for that adjustment in the room. Listen to the notes. And like I tell my students, if you don't understand an adjustment or feedback, you can always ask. Don't be afraid to ask. But don't ask 20 questions. You can ask, what's your frame? You can ask for clarification on a note. So in that, staying in the casting room, what is a pet peeve that you have? Something that you wish actors wouldn't do in the room. All right. So there's the, the, the pet peeve of before they, as they're actually entering the room, that's the first thing. And that is that. What do you think is more likely to help you in an audition? How will you get the casting director to work with you? So if you come in ready to play, which is an attitude and the way you comport your body, you can always tell the people who have like played with it and they just want to see what they can do and they're, they're ready to play with you. That's the way to come in instead of a lot of actors a lot of actors come in and they're angsting and they're holding all of this and they come in and it doesn't it's like a like kind of psych themselves out and in, and in turn psych us out which means that we're least likely it's it's a lot of work to work with them you know it's hard to pull energy out sometimes it's much easier believe it or not to bring energy down because there's something to play with so so the first thing is when you walk into the room your attitude should be hey what can i do with this mm-hmm. all right you can't judge the piece the piece is what you got make it work the other thing is people come in unprepared, and I find that to be, I, I, it's almost, it's crazy making for me because if you have an opportunity, and in Seattle especially, but anywhere, there aren't that many auditions, so if you have an opportunity, why would you not take a few minutes to look at the script? And then if the script has been changed, I understand because you've been working on a script a certain way, and then you come in and we hand you something, it's like, what? Um, but then being an actor who can think on your feet is a good thing. And instead of freaking out that you're given a script that you hadn't, haven't had time to work on, you should be thinking, wow, they still want me in this piece. They like me. What can I should just come back in with something they know that they've just given me something I haven't had time to look at. Just so that those types of things. Just not being available. I mean, the basic stuff, like... Coming in for an audition, accepting an audition where you're not really available for the shoot dates, where you're not available for a callback and you haven't discussed that with anyone, not coming with your picture and resume, although I know that that has changed quite a bit, that a lot of people don't require a picture and resume, I say bring them. 
And if we don't take them, we don't take them, but have them. Don't wait for your last one and then wave it in front of me and say, this is my last one. My clients, and I don't understand my colleagues because I'm a dinosaur. I've been here for a million years and I have a way of doing things. But I have never had a client that at the end of a callback or if they don't have a callback and there's just one session, they don't lay all the pictures and resumes out on the floor or on a table to create their cast. So it's much harder to watch it on screen because technically we can do that, but they like to move it around and they like to see, you know, once they decide on you, they want to see what you've done and they like Mm -hmm. to turn it over and see the resume. So that's part of, for me, the auditioning process is the final part where they go to look at the people that are their choices to see who they're going to end up with. So I can't imagine that a picture and resume, a physical, tactile piece of paper with your picture isn't going to help you, you know. So that's a, that's another pet peeve. But mostly it's availability issues. People don't know their union status, so they come in for a union job and they are a must-join, but they're not ready to join. Or they're um, union and they show up for a non-union job. And it's like, you know, you need to, these are questions you need to ask. Be your own business manager. I can just do so much. What my job as a professional casting director is to do is to, to, to give you facilitated an opportunity for you to show what you can do. But you need to take care of the business aspects between you and your agent. And if I were an actor, even if I had an agent, I would make sure that I'm on top of everything because they handle a lot of people. And it's just, you know, it's smart to not have to face the dragon, whoever's auditioning you, and actually not be available or have issues that haven't been discussed. That type of thing is killer. And if someone tells me, if I find out that they've taken an audition and I'm bringing them in, and then I say, part of the slate sometimes, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, I say, are any issues with the shoot dates? And I hear like the spewing two o'clock to four on Tuesday and 10 to five on, you know, it's like, it's a waste of your time. And I shut down the camera and I say, "I, I needed to know this before you accepted the audition. You know, if you're a theater actor, particularly because you have tech, you have so many things, there's so many pieces involved with doing a play that you need to be able to either tell the person generating the audition that you have these issues before you accept a time or have that conversation with your agent. And don't let your agent say, tell her when you get there. If your agent says, or him, tell him, tell her, if your agent says, I spoke with the casting director and they just want you to remind them, that's one thing. But let her know when you get there. It's a little late. And then I'm a little pissy. And you're a little pissy because you didn't think that was going to be a problem. Everybody's pissy. And you know, like I said, you're a fragile artist and you don't want to get in that headset because you know it's going to sabotage your work. It's all about the work that you do in the room. So, you know, that's so pet peeves. I mean, I hate to go too heavy on that because in any business... The protocol is specific to that business, and we have the same thing. And it's just kind of, to me, it's common sense, but then this is my world day in and day out. So people don't always get it. And the old school was, show up, they'll fall in love with you, they'll change the date. Oh, geez. That's been over for a long, (laughs) long time. You know what I mean? That's just because of locations and crew. It's just not going to happen. But if you can have the wherewithal to say, these are my issues, should I still come? For instance, if there's a callback and you're not available for the callback, that's usually not a go. But I would want the opportunity to say yes or no because I have clients who would be, they're not seeing a million people, so if we needed to roll the original tape at the callback of you, because I know that they really should look at you again, then we will. But when you have 10, 15 roles, they can't stop everything to look at the first. I mean, it's just, to me, it's just not even, it doesn't make sense not to communicate that. Well, I love that you mentioned that too. Is that something Dave and I... We'll tell our students that they say, well, isn't it good to be seen? 
And we say, well, no, because if you're getting seen and then you're letting them know we're not available, a casting director is going to call you back in. You just got seen in a really bad light. Right. And I'm always the one, you know, always shoot the messenger. So if I bring you in and they fall in love with you and then you turn out not to be available, I mean, something's happened. You can't help that. There are always exceptions. But if that's the, if you're not thinking about that, I mean, you have to be your own business manager. You're an artist. It's true. And the most important thing is your work. But you're getting a lot of people involved to help you to be able to show your work. And a lot of that is the business aspects. And I think that that's something that actors just don't think about. And it's very important. You know, it's just an important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Getting back to this, um, we talked about a few like features, the six features a year thing, mm-hmm. the kind of the, the good old days. The good of, old days, the really old days, yeah. What, was there, um, we hear now a lot about the film incentives going from one state to another. But and not here. Actors chasing that down. Were film incentives around back then as well? What, what happened to the industry here? I don't remember the term film incentives when I first moved here. We had a film office, mm-hmm. and every year they were threatened to close the film office, even though for every dollar spent at that office, I guess it was the state or city, I don't remember, I think probably the state, um, there were $4 were made back, and you couldn't say that about too many departments, mm-hmm. you know. So, But we always had to fight to keep it open, and then finally they wouldn't fund it anymore. And I think what happened while all that was happening, and then we had a, a SAG official at, at that time who was a finger wagger. Mm-hmm. So permits were always a problem in Seattle. The, the um, city whatever it's called, the people who have, who own businesses, you know, to get a permit, they, they didn't like the intrusion into their business world. Mm-hmm. And um, homeowners didn't like the traffic. It, I mean, all the things that you can imagine would be um, an inconvenience for people who are not in the film or working on the film. So getting permits was really hard. We made it very hard f- for them for some reason to get permits. Then the SAG office, instead of like trying to accommodate and find a way to whatever, whatever it was, they were finger waggers. They didn't have the type of personality. No, kept on happening. Everybody they would hire just wasn't a facilitator. They said, let, they didn't sit down and go, how can we solve this? How can we help you want to come to Seattle? Because we love having you here and we make plenty of money and then you go away, you know, which is like perfect. Yeah. Um, so that was all happening simultaneously. So the, the business owners downtown were making it difficult for people to shoot in front of their businesses. The permit people were just like oblivious to how important it was to have, uh, have people shooting, for instance, when we did Sleepless in Seattle. They didn't realize that the Bureau of Tourism said that the influx of people coming to see Seattle because they saw that film, like tenfold, they got more visitors, more tourists. But very short, you know, people are short-sighted. Mm-hmm. And then, so then the film office folded. And then a few years later, there's another office that deals with film here. They're very lovely people. and But by then, also what was happening simultaneously was Vancouver, Canada, mm-hmm. their money started to be worth more than the dollar. So what happened was everything is always based on finances. The, the powers that be in LA or wherever started to go there and an infrastructure appeared. Crew started to be there, more casting directors, actors were flooding there, just everything. And plus, it was cheaper. Yeah. So that happened for a long time. We used to laugh and say, oh, my God, that we see the, the limos going past Washington yeah. to Canada because of the money. Like right now, they use Romania because there are no unions and they can spend very little money on, on, on you know, production values. So, I mean, it's always about money. That's the baseline. So then after the Vancouver debacle, when the money kind of evened out, 
Oregon got an amazing incentive together because their business people said, oh, we, this is a way to make money for the state. And they come in, they spend it. You know, Everybody's affected, hotels, wait, waiters, rate people, service people of all kinds, cab drivers. I mean, you name it. People benefit. They, t- they bring millions and then they leave. Yeah. I mean, you hope to have businesses like that. So then Portland became the place to be. It still is. When I'm sitting doing nothing, which is rarely, but when I am, I know that there's Portland stuff going on. And so now we see the limousines going from Vancouver (laughs) to Portland. So, of course, for someone like me, it's to not see the business grow, but to see it diminish is very difficult. And the type of work that we're getting, we're not getting the features. We have a lot of indies, and indies are wonderful. And it's a way for actors to get practical experience and work with different directors who sometimes go on to do other things and get their hands on script and maybe have a role that's a little better than a line, you know. So it's still very good, but indies aren't budgeted very well, so it's hard for them to hire a casting director. And I can't always afford to give up my daily money from the other work to work on an indie. So I really have to love the piece so people can still approach me with them. And if I like the script and if I feel I have time or the direct, it's also hard sometimes to work with a first time director because they're not sure. And so they get people involved and then somehow the locations go away or sometimes the money dissipates. And just like, so to get involved in something like that and take away from your other work that keeps you living um, and get actors involved and schedules that never happen, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's a good side and a bad side. I'm really still glad this is an indie world, even though I don't participate in it that much. I do about one or two a year. I'm still glad it's here because I think it's great training ground. And this is a very nurturing community. I mean, we love our actors. We know our actors. We groom our actors. I teach at the grad school at UW. I teach at Cornish, Cornish for many years. And like, they know that I'm their bridge, that if I, you know, when they, it's a class and it's a safe place to do their work like any class. But if I find someone that's interesting, I'm more than willing to bring them in. They're my children. You know, I love them. It's like you feel about your students. You know, you're so happy when something happens for them and you feel like you can touch them and help them manifest something from all the work they do and the money they spend to train. And Yeah. So I don't know. I'm all over the place now, but that's what I'm thinking is just in general, it's a wonderful town to be an actor. But what happens is if you really want to make a living as an actor and you don't somehow make the voiceover thing happen, which is a very lucrative thing when you're one of the ones that are working constantly. Um, it's really hard to make a living as an actor here, which is why the whole thing about dates and being on top of callbacks and stuff like that is much more difficult here because people have daycare issues. They have job issues. Whereas when you're in LA, you could change the role from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock and by noon, everybody's there because they're geared around making that happen. The, the culture there is you need to be available. You need to make yourself available. And here it's more like it's a it's nice to be able to make yourself available, but it's not always possible because you're trying to live, you know, so we have to deal with that a lot. Well, I love that you mentioned that, too, because that's something David and I will always tell our students. They want to be seen, but it's not good to be seen if you're not available. Then you're just going to be seen in a bad light. And it's really changed. Seattle has become one of the most expensive cities to live in. I mean, I remember when I was in my 20s in Seattle, you could work a part-time job and then just be acting. Now you need a full-time job and you are trying to squeeze in auditions when you can. What is something that people maybe don't know about you? That I'm a human outside of what I do for a living, that I'm a casting director by profession and I do spend a lot of time in theaters watching actors and I you know, but I have other interests. I have a family and I have a you know, home life and I have lots of other interests, actually. I, I have a lot of philanthropic interests. I'm very civic minded. I'm very political and I work on campaigns. And um, 
I don't know. Just I think like anybody, what you do for a living is what you do for a living, but it isn't necessarily the essence of who you are. So that's what I would want them to know, that I have other interests and I can talk about other things other than the last audition. (laughs) It's not always the topic I want to broach when I'm not actively auditioning people. And I do have to say, before we got into the sound booth today, we spent a good 15 minutes talking with Jody just about dogs. Yeah. I mean, she's pretty much been brought into our family as Bruno's Auntie Jody. Because I feed him. You're an actor and you're very, and I think when you're an artist, it takes, it takes a bigger chunk of your life to be an artist because it's such a psychological, physiological, intellectual, emotional thing. But you have other interests too. You have days filled with your family, your husband, your animals, you know. All sorts of things. So that's important. So again, actors, if you see Jody, don't ask her about gigs and auditions. Ask her about the weather. Talk about dogs. Talk about politics. Talk about food. I think that's anybody. What you do is what you do. And sometimes, like I say, what you do has has a bigger effect on your persona and, and the way you think. But I, I think that people misread that that's the only thing that I can talk to them about. And that's part of the reason why I love what I do. I I like being in the room with the actors. Of course, that's fun. But also the waiting room. You know, I know a lot of people like you and David and many other people for many years. I know about marriages and divorces, and I know about your lives. And to me, that's the interesting part. It's a very social job. So that makes that's an added uh, plus to what I do. It isn't just the puzzle piece of who would do well for a certain role, but getting to know the people. Hey, we're taking a break for some sponsor shout-outs. Who are we shouting out today, Angela? The Seattle Film Summit, coming this November 2020. You can check them out on Facebook for more details. SeattleFilmSummit.com. And special thanks to our sponsor, Bredetta Vines VoiceOver Talent. From soccer mom, sexy siren, to valley girl and warrior woman, Bredetta has your commercial audiobook and animation needs covered. Want to join her in the trenches? She offers private coaching for you, an aspiring voiceover talent. To schedule a session with Bredetta, go to BredettaVines.com. That's B-R-A-D-E-T-T-A-V-I-N-E-S dot com. Shout out to Mighty Tripod Productions and Mighty Tripod Acting Studio. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Or check us out at MightyTripod.com. I love when I come into the lobby and see you sitting there behind the desk. Yeah. And that doesn't always happen. Getting that FaceTime with a casting director right when you walk into the door. And it's cool that, that you want actors to be comfortable and at ease because if they shine, you'll shine. And if you're comfortable... And you can't always expect to be comfortable in a room or mm-hmm. with the people that are auditioning you. It's not a, you don't have to love that person or have a relationship with that person. But if you're feeling comfortable, you're going to do better work. Because again, you're very fragile. <laughs> you're artists. And the environment has a lot to do with how you perform. Now, sometimes we can't help it if you have to wait. We have clients that come late or in the middle of a casting session, they have to have a conference call and they didn't tell you. I mean, all sorts of things can be ugly and annoying and disturbing when you come into the most unnatural thing you do to begin with, which is auditioning. We can't always take care of that. But I know in my room, in my rooms, if I can be on time, I try. Um, Sometimes I can't. I mean, it got to the point a few years ago where people were so accustomed to coming in, like at 10 o'clock, their their call time was 10 o'clock, and at 10 o'clock, they were 
were in, that they would make like dental appointments for 15 minutes after the audition. Mm. And then I'd be, then they'd be really angry with me when the client would come late or the machines go down, which happens all the time. Casting networks has a glitch, something that we're using and needing to, to do with the session. And then I have to make them wait. And I had to tell everybody, you need to be here for an hour. Know that you need to be here for an hour. Don't make a 10-minute a appointment because it may not happen. And if you train yourself, definitely outside of my room, that's never going to happen. And that's also very old school. I have a question about, we talked about change mm-hmm. in the industry. Like how things were one way in the late 80s and mm-hmm. things have now changed. How has the nature of casting changed. I'm thinking about when I first started, I would mail in a hard copy of a headshot. I still and now like that. Self-taping is such a big yeah, thing. It's changing. How has your work changed from a technical perspective? Um, well, first of all, less people, because of technology, less people are hiring casting directors. So I already see where that's going. Although I can't imagine, it's very tedious for the average producer to take that on themselves and go through all the tapes or go through all the headshots. I mean, what do you get from a headshot? So technically, it's changed a lot of self-tapes. But even my girlfriend who started me in casting, Ronnie, uh, who did Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, you know, she's very established. She finds that even she is having to look at tapes. She's not really interviewing, auditioning talent live. And she said it's totally changed her enjoyment of what she's doing. And it's very tedious. And I think if you talk to Nikkei about this, too, because when she was doing Z Nation, she was getting a zillion tapes. And I can't imagine that everybody's on tape for you because they couldn't go to Spokane for the first call. And she, you know, it's overwhelming to watch all these tapes and they're poor sound and poor lighting. And you really, you have to really have a great eye and a great ear, which she does, to be able to pour through hundreds of tapes for one role. And she said she'd gone through thousands of tapes Mm -hmm. and then be able to say, these are the people we should move on to a callback or these are the tapes we need to show. Now, people have gotten a little bit better about taping and what they need to invest in, which I think is unfair that actors should have that burden. But only some jobs do I allow self-tapes. Because I found that if I can get you in the room, I can make magic happen. But if I'm not there in the room with you, your interpretation of of the script or just of um, the dynamic of the piece or just directions never works as well as being in the room. So if you can mm-hmm. ever get in the room, mm-hmm. you want to. That's a that's a really great thing you just brought up because I just got uh, an opportunity to send in a self tape. I received a breakdown, but the breakdown was very slim, like rural. It was very vague. He's a Mm -hmm. rural guy between 45 and 65, Mm -hmm. very wide range. And the scene itself was a one-pager. It was a conversation, but there was so little to latch on to. Like, I'm not going to send in a tape for this. I have nothing to really, like, grab as far as character. It's harder when it's less... And when you have a few pages, at least you can develop a character a little Mm -hmm. bit, you know, when it's like one page and four or five lines. And, you know, it's really hard to understand. First of all, you don't have the bigger piece to inform the scene. Mm -hmm. So you're already at a, you know, disadvantage. And then every choice you make, although as an actor, it's very bold to make choices at all based on the cryptic and vague information that you're Mm -hmm. given. But still, there's somebody there to guide you. I honestly think it's a horrible development, but I think that we have to get used to this, that technology is eventually, it's cheaper, Mm -hmm. but quality is, at this point anyway, you definitely give up quality. So once in a while, I will say, yes, send in a tape. You know, sometimes people are coming from Spokane and I don't want them to come to the first call. And if there is a callback, I can say, do this and send me the tape. And, but honestly, oftentimes those people aren't called back as a rule. Oh, it's hard to tape or not to tape. You know, as actors, we always want to get into the room so you have that face-to-face, so you can get feedback. 
But, you know, if it's an out-of-town audition, it's nice to have the option to self-tape. But actors do need to get good at it. You know, be able to bring those strong choices into their submission, send them more than one take if you're allowed. I mean, it's why we have self-taping as a major part of our curriculum at our acting studio. But, oh, God, yeah, being in the room, especially with you, Jody, you always give an adjustment, which is always something I appreciate. You always give another chance. Because I know for me, after 30 years in the industry, if I go in person, I am going to give you a strong first take because we may not get another chance. And I think we as actors need to do the same in our self-tapes because who knows what you all are looking for. You know, it's just best to show what you as the actor can do with the role in person or in a self-tape. And then you just got to move on. And that whole thing about the one option is interesting because I always say, unless it's something that's come up since you got the initial audition and you're you're here now, and I say, uh, you know, Angela, David, they just told me to include this, so you should be thinking about this. But I like to see what you bring to the table on your own steam because sometimes what you bring is far more interesting than anything I'm going to help you with. And then I have to make sure that you hit the notes that the director has given me, however vague and cryptic. So that's worth it. Plus another thing that I don't think that actors realize is we're always shopping. So it's really hard to shop from a self-tape. So if you come in for Project A, and for you could do an amazing job, a wonderful job, but for some reason someone else is their fantasy and they get it. I'm always shopping for the good actor for the next job, and so is the person to whom I'm showing you. They're looking for another, they often will say to me, clients that I work with constantly will say to me, oh, what about the woman or the man who was wearing the paisley dress? Or that, you know, we really like them, bring them in for this. So they remember. And I certainly look to see who are the consistent auditioners because, again, if you do a good job, I look like I'm a genius. So I want to work with people that, first of all, I don't have to work so damn hard with, Mm -hmm. but also who come in and we play. I mean, that's also my joy is to play it. And I think you're at the stage in your careers where you like to play too. I mean, you, you do a lot of work and preparation. So when you come in, you're very proud and very anxious to show me, me meaning anyone who's auditioning you, what you can do. But I think, you know, to play after that and see where we can go, then the client has choices and sees that you're an actor that can be directed. Because if you're an actor that's directable, that's all we really need to know. Because you are given very cryptic and vague information when the audition is generated. So you make choices based on that. And then as soon as we play with you, it starts to, they start to see it come to life. Even if that's not the direction they want to go, they know that if they tell you they need royal blue, you can do royal blue or light blue. You know, and that's the, those are the, the, I hate to say it, but it's because it used to sound so trite, but I really get it. Those are the shades and tones. And actors who can do that um, can give you the notes, you know. You can't, once you see that, it's really hard to go back to someone who can only make one choice and that's all you get to see. But if it's on self-tape, they only get to see one choice anyway. So they have no clue if you're worth it to bring in to play. So actors, listen up. Make those strong choices in person and in those self-tapes. Show more than one color. Show them the rainbow. So what you're saying is true. And yet, of course, like everything, the other side is you have to make a choice mm-hmm. and commit to that choice and maybe only make one choice. Maybe you should only make do one, t- one take. The rainbow can be muddy. Yeah. You know what I mean? So sometimes people go, well, I don't really know what they want. So I could do A 
or I could do B, or I could try to cover it all, and then all we see is mush. Mm-hmm. So, so, but you can't on a self tape. I think it's too difficult to assume that you have to show them different types unless they ask, take two takes, two different takes. So, so my my rebut to that is, although I agree with that on one level, I also understand that. If you try to cover too much territory, what you're doing is not showing what you can do. It's just being safe. Mm. And that isn't clear. And you're not hitting notes. And Get into the room. I mean, it's can. really important. And besides, it's relationship building. We want to be in the room with right. casting you want to directors. Be in the room. And also, I think as an actor, I, can't, I always say to my Cornish kids, I say, wouldn't it be just so nice if they knew what they wanted and they told me and I told you because you're an actor. So if we tell you we want this, it's not a big deal for you to prepare the yes. piece with those choices. Mm. But they don't because sometimes they don't even know what they want and they're hoping it'll walk in. And you just never know which opportunity that's going to be, the type where you have to walk in and some how figure out something like people go I'll be I want to do something interesting ambitious and I say you know what just do stuff you can do and make bold doesn't mean big broad or ambitious it means you make a choice and you and you and we see the choice that's pretty bold considering you're not given very much information and like you said artists can be fragile we are constantly putting ourselves out there to be judged but as a teacher I always say embrace who you are You are enough. Make your choices, but show them you. Many actors are too afraid to do that. But you have the maturity and the years to understand that. I bet at one part of your, you know, that would have been what you thought. But now you know better. Now you say, this is what I've chosen to do. And if someone does direct me, I will, you know, I'm smart enough to be able to understand the direction and take the direction. If I'm lucky enough to get direction, which isn't always the case. But that comes with anything, even for me in my work. When I first started casting, when I was actually in the room with the actor, I'm not an actor. So for the first year, I didn't say anything to the actors. Whatever you did, you did. And then by the second year, I was anxious to tell you what I knew. And that was not so great because then I didn't give you a chance to show me what you could do. Mm. And by the third year, I understood. Come in, do what you chose to do. And if I know there's something I need that's different, then I'll open up my mouth. Unless there's something so, I've been told that there's something that before you even open up your mouth, I've been told you should do this, hit this note. But that even for my evolution as someone that's in a room with the actor was at first I was intimidated. What do I know? I'm not an actor. And the second was, well, now I know. So let me tell you before you even do anything. (laughs) And then the third one was, hey, let's try it this way. We already have your choice. Now let's do it a different way. And then we'll give the client the option. So everybody evolves by your comfort level. You know, I don't come from acting. Yeah. You know, um, I come from being a music producer. Being in the trenches. If I was an actor who's not represented, like I don't have a talent agent. Yes. Is there any way to get on your radar? Yes, you send a headshot and resume, hard copy. I know people hate that. The reason why it's hard copy is because it's not my job to use my ink to print out your picture and resume. Just mm-hmm. like I don't. And if you're a freelancer, make sure your email and your phone number is on your resume. And then I have I have a freelance I have freelance books, but I'm a dinosaur, so I can't speak to any other person, any other casting director. It's much easier for me when I have a job to cast to just send a breakdown out to the agents because it's it's contained. But in my office, I particularly, since I teach different places and I have classes of my own, and I will always show a freelancer or two. The only time that I don't bring in a lot of freelancers, at least, you know, six or seven, depending on how many roles there are or what the job is, is when I have a client coming to the original session and there's no callback because I can't take the chance that they'll have to sit through someone who maybe really Mm. can't do this. But even so, I still do. I mean, People have to understand, actors have to understand, if I show a client someone they haven't seen before, 
and they like them, what a feather in my cap. Mm -hmm. You know, wow, she's not just calling the agent, she digs. And I'm known for that. I dig. And and the people who are in casting that are my age and have been doing it as long as I have, we dig. We don't just make the, the we don't just send out the breakdown to, you know, the agents. We call people we know. We go through our freelance books, try to find people that, you know, we want to work with that maybe don't have an agent. But I'll give you the caveat to that. Since I've already told you that I'm a dinosaur and people, it takes a lot of time to call freelancers, you should get an agent. And the reason why you should get an agent is there is an agent for everyone. There are agents for a look. There are agents for a look and a line. And then there are agents for actors who really are seasoned actors who are trained or whatever, or have done stuff. So because that way, someone is always putting your face and your name in front of someone who's in a position to hire you. It's too hard to know what's going on and to be submitting for jobs that, you know, are happening unless you have someone putting your name and your face in front of someone. So you want someone working for you so you don't have to do all the groundwork, which may also lead to nothing because, again, it's just not, it's impossible to know who is doing what and get in on it unless a friend of yours is auditioning and you. I, I, I haven't had that happen too many times yeah. where an actor will call and say, my girlfriend is coming in for you on this and I think I might be right for it, you know? Because there are certain opportunities you can't get in town without an agent. Commercials, corporate gigs, and, and lots of the voiceovers. But in the indie film world, actors can self-submit. So when it comes to getting a relationship or getting on the radar of a casting director, especially yourself, Jody. What about the actors without agents? They can snail mail you a headshot resume or drop it off at the office, but what if they have a, a, a reel? How should they get you their reel? I don't look at reels. Okay. I, that's a terrible thing, but I'll tell you why. Because yeah. I feel that everything I need to know about an actor, I can get in the room. All right. So reels are like if I know your work and I love you and I have a project I think you're totally right for, then I'm going to want to turn my client onto your reel and yeah. say, and that's happened about three or four times where people have actually been booked for movies based on a reel. Yeah. And then the director will say, well, give them these directions and have them self-tape. This was years and years ago even. Yeah. Yeah. I see a look, first of all, in my, it's a visual medium. So gender, ethnicity, type as much as you can get from a picture. Sometimes you can't. And then I turn it over to see what I'm getting with mm -hmm. that gender, ethnicity, and type. And so that is what sells you. I don't know what other people think. I don't know what actors think other than that that I would need to start the process. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to do general auditions where I would see 10 a month. I would see 10 people a month that come in with a two-minute monologue, age-appropriate, camera-ready, and then I'd give them a cold read, a, a commercial piece, and that was very helpful. And I liked doing generals because I really got to see people I normally would never see. Mm. And I don't know why that stopped. It's a time thing, but that's a really healthy thing to do, and I might start it again. I mean, I always say to you, and I know I've said this to you, you know, if you have a bunch of people that you think I should see, then let's set up a time when they come and do an open house and we do, you know, I watch them, and you've, you've set that up for them. Thank you. Well, that's really important because mm -hmm. that is a way for people who aren't represented or don't have the wherewithal of how to get in can be seen. Well, with and that general audition idea, just that's something that we might be able to help you out with if you get serious and I'm want serious. some assistance. I'm serious. We, we'd love to help. It's so much easier for me if you take it on and say, Jody, are you mm -hmm. available Wednesday between 7 and 9 p.m.? We will have... 15 people coming in that you don't, that awesome. aren't represented, and we'd love to show them to you. That's a great you opportunity. Know. It's a good, somebody, somebody smart will do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe it's time for the bonus round. It's the bonus round. It's the bonus Just round. Just don't ask me more weight. No, never, never. First round, first question, only one round. Waffles or pancakes? Pancakes. 
All right. What is your favorite? Wait, look, we can get Ooh. deeper. Plain, or do you put anything in your pancakes? Nothing in the pancakes. I like. I just like if I eat anything, I only want. I want to have the taste of whatever it is right. on it, but not in it. So what's on it? Syrup. No butter. No, no butter. butter. Oh, wow. Greasy. Yuck. Okay. I love the, I love the detail. Uh, now, this can go one way or the other, depending how you hear it. What is your favorite jam? I'm not a jam eater, but I like for the first ingredient not to be sugar. Never what, been asked this before. What is the... Um, <laughs> Is it, is it Ardios? What's the casting? The Ardios Awards for, okay, for casting directors, yeah. So you usually be asked, because we have a lot of actors in, yes. you usually ask the question, I'd like to dedicate this Oscar to... Dot, oh, dot, yeah, dot. Yeah. But for you, it's I'd like to dedicate this Ardios Award. If I were going, I would definitely say thank you to Ronnie Eskel, because Ronnie was my best, is my best friend, and she does the most amazing work. Um, if you look up her resume at IMDb, you'll just... It's, she's just amazing, and actors have always loved her. And we, when we moved from New York to L.A. and lived together, all of our parties were all these people that I didn't know of. That were She got her first job at Los Angeles Theater Center, the LATC. So our parties were all people like, um, who's the guy from Roseanne? Uh, John Goodman. Goodman, you know, people oh. like that. Just the most oh amazing gosh. actors, like all the Second City and Steppenwolf actors. They all knew her and loved her and would come oh. to our house. You know, she's someone that was very beloved by actors. She's the one who taught me so my whole frame of reference in terms of how to be a casting director is to make the actor comfortable, to make, help them be as prepared as possible, and to appreciate that they come in all sizes and colors and abilities, and you know that's the game is to play. So I would always say thank you so much to Ronnie Yeskel because she taught me how to be a human. The next time, finish this sentence, the next time I go into the trenches, I will make sure to enjoy it. You know, when, at this stage of my career, since I'm a dinosaur and, and in my life, I always feel like I want to have fun. I want to have fun. I want it to be a win-win. I'm not trying to have power over anybody or be more important than anyone else. I just want to show up to work or whatever I have to do, whatever my project is, personal or professional, and I want to be able to enjoy myself. And I think that that spirit is very contagious. That's why I said at the very beginning, just to kind of circle around, if you come in as an actor, even though you're nervous, it's the most unnatural thing you do as an actor is to audition, but you come into play, that's very contagious. Mm. And we're more likely to work with you if we feel like you have the spirit of let's play. So that's the answer. I would try to enjoy it, whatever the trenches were. And I've been in plenty of trenches, not just professionally. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jody, for Pleasure. joining us. It was really great having you on the show. Thank you, Jody. Thank you for spending some time with us in the trenches. This is the part of the episode where we say things like, please subscribe and like us and follow us on social. Where can they find us, Angela? We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all at Mighty Tripod. Subscribe. Be mighty. Holla at your boy. Be safe out there. Into the trenches.